Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, episode number 10. My name is Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders at Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, Dr. Gerald Ozier will be taking us through the last couple of weeks in cybersecurity news, followed by a roundtable discussion with key members from several popular open source cybersecurity projects. The panelists include Leonard Koopman, founder and CEO of Greylog, Zach Wasserman, co-creator of OS Query, who is currently the CTO of Fleet Device Management, and Peter Manev, co-founder and chief strategy officer at Stamus Networks, the makers of Suricata. It is a great conversation with lots of valuable insight, and I hope you enjoy it. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm Jerry, and this is the Simply Cyber Report, powered by Lima Charlie. The top cyber news stories you need to know about right now. EDR solutions are fantastic until they're not. Unfortunately, a novel technique has been developed by Orier, a security researcher to weaponize the file deletion functionality of most enterprise quality EDR solutions to include ones like Sentinel One and Microsoft Defender. The clever approach here is identifying the two-step process most EDRs do when deleting malware. The first, detect the malware, and the second, delete the malware. Orier questioned if he could control flow in between those two steps, and as we find out, he can. He creates or drops a malicious file in a temp directory with the same file name of the legitimate file he wants to delete. Once the EDR detects it, it says a malicious file, which is nearly instantly, it gets flagged for deletion. He holds the file's handle open to keep it from being allowed to be deleted from the system. He then deletes the temp directory with the malicious file and creates a junction to the legitimate directory where the legitimate file is stored. Upon reboot, the EDR finishes execution of its deletion of the malicious file, but actually deletes the legitimate file. The EDR executes with the highest privileges as well, so no file is safe from this technique. It is worth noting this was responsibly disclosed to the vendors, and not all EDR vendors are still vulnerable to this particular attack, but it would be worth verifying with your vendor or your client's product of choice. If you're running or you support small businesses that run F5 Big IP, Zixel Firewalls, Totolink and D-Link routers, and Hikevision cameras, be on the lookout for a Go-based malware named ZeroBot in the wild. ZeroBot's main goal is to make compromised endpoints participate in distributed denial of service attacks when needed. It runs like a worm as well, self-propagating across networks connected to infected devices and can run Linux and Windows command. Initial access is achieved through software exploitation of 21 known vulnerabilities, mostly published in 21 and 22, with fewer vulnerabilities dating back to before 2018. To keep your gear patched and check out IOCs for ZeroBot to facilitate detection and threat hunting activities. Be mindful of SUS wireless access point splash pages that could be delivering malware. Android malware dubbed Zombinder is infecting Android and Windows devices in a kind of just-in-time Trojan-style malware. Users are tricked to download the Zombinder payload through the fake wireless access point splash pages. Zombinder then enables criminals to bind whatever malicious payload they want to legitimate apps on the system. So for example, the Instagram app on your mobile device. You'd still be able to double tap to show some love for your favorite sports team's Instagram post, but also have the malware sideloaded. A notification does pop up when loading infected apps regarding the need for a plugin to run, i.e. like the sideloading of the malware, but I could easily see people clicking right through that. 
Current instances in the wild are seeing ERMAC payloads being bound to victims, which is a malware capable of keylogging, data Excel, and basic info stealing. Muddy Water, an Iranian-based APT, has been pushing hard with remote administration tooling as an initial payload to ease compromise and establishing of persistence on victim machines. A favorite of many a threat actor recently, remote administration solutions used by many MSPs works for malicious purposes as well. Solutions such as Remote Utilities and Screen Connect were popular, but have since fallen off in place of the new one, Synchro. Initial attack via spear phishing through a compromised corporate email with an HTML attachment with a link to the Synchro payload. And because it's a compromised corporate account, the victims are falling at a higher attack rate because of the trust that they implicitly put with who the sender is. While not particularly sophisticated attack or anything novel or new, Note that there is an uptick and in the use of remote administration solutions as part of the Cyber Threat Actors Toolkit. Remember to check out simplycyber.io slash streams to get longer form, deeper dive cyber threat briefings every weekday morning. I'm Gerald Lozier from Simply Cyber. Consider yourself armed with knowledge. Before we get going with this roundtable discussion, I just want to take a moment to plug Cybersecurity Cares. This is a community holiday fundraising initiative, which kicked off on November 29th and will be running through to December 16th. The effort has raised about $15,000 US for Action Against Hunger so far, and we're hoping to double that before this thing is over. On December 16th, this Friday, we will be hosting a live stream telethon that is going to be chock full of members of the cybersecurity community. It's going to be a lot of fun, and you should tune in to join us for part of the day. To learn more or simply make a donation to this worthy cause, please visit cybersecurity-cares.com. That's cybersecurity-cares.com. Now for the roundtable discussion with key members from several popular open source cybersecurity projects. Hello, and welcome to this webinar where we're going to be talking with key members of several successful open source projects that are making huge contributions to cybersecurity as a whole. In this conversation, we're going to learn about what inspired these projects, how they came to be, how they are trying to grow, and any lessons, good or bad, they've learned along the way. It takes a lot of passion, courage, and vision to embark on an open source adventure, and I'm incredibly honored to be hosting this webinar. I appreciate everyone taking the time out of their busy day to be here with us. I know there are a lot of things competing for your attention, but we feel this is a valuable conversation and are very glad that you're here. If any questions come up during the talk, you can add them to the chat window of the specific platform you're watching this from. We will try and answer any questions as they come in and can address any that we didn't get to at the end. I would like to thank our panelists for being here with us today. They're all very busy people, and we're very lucky to have them sharing this valuable knowledge with us. My name is Christopher Luft. I am uh, one of the co-founders at Lima Charlie, and I'll be moderating the conversation. To get things started, I'm going to ask each of the panelists to introduce themselves briefly and tell us about their open source project. Zach, why don't you start, and then Leonard, and then Peter. Absolutely. I'm, I'm Zach Wasserman. Today, I'm the CTO at Fleet Device Management, uh, which is an open core company based around OS Query, which is an open source project that I helped create at Facebook back in 2014. So I have kind of a, a dual role between a uh, very security-focused open source project and an open core company built around that. I am uh, Leonard Koopman. I'm uh, the founder of Greylock. Uh, Greylock is an open source project I started in back in 2009, so a pretty long time ago. Um, and uh, it started as a 
fairly simple log management solution. So you would send it um, all your logs in the beginning from your applications. Then uh, we extended that so you could send from your operating systems, your network hardware, all kinds of other sources. Um, and uh, for, I want to say, God, it's 2022 for probably six or seven years now. Um, we're also, uh, I think, very, very common in the security space. Um, we've added some additional data sources, some other, um, some other features, uh, so you can use this log management um, a little more like some people use a SIM or a Zim, depending on how you want to pronounce that. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's what we do. Very active, uh, very active in the community. Uh, you'll find us every year at DefCon sponsoring multiple parties. Uh, that's always a great way to find me. Peter? Hi, my name is Peter Manoff. I'm the Chief Strategy Officer of Thermos Networks. Um, I'm also a member of the Executive Council of the Open Information Security Foundations, which is the actually the umbrella foundation, non-profit NGO, US-based organization um, over Suricata, which Suricata is an open source um, IDS, IPS, Network Security Monitoring Engine, course located on GitHub. Uh, we have our roots in from there. Um, and Samos with Eric, my uh, colleague and uh, co-founder at Samos Networks. And uh, that's where we actually met in the project, uh, during the project Suricata. Um, and I've been uh, truly thankful and very lucky to be part of the uh, Suricata community um, and everybody involved. And thank you very much for having me. Oh, thank you for being here. Um, Zach, I'll start with you. Uh, what is it that inspired OS Query? Uh, how did it initially get started and what was behind the decision to make it an open source project? Yeah, absolutely. So what inspired OS Query was actually a guy named Mike Arpaia came to Facebook in, in 2014 with a vision to build OS Query. He wanted to build something that that defenders could use on macOS and Linux, which were severely underserved at that time by endpoint security software. And he wanted to make it easy for IT analysts to use. So not having to write code, which the, the systems of the time typically tended to be like they could execute Python scripts or, or something like that. We wanted to make something more accessible. And lastly, wanted to make it open source because one, we, you know, we love open source and, and the philosophy around that. But really, I think it's about kind of the, the legacy and the impact that's possible with the project. You know, we could have built something internally at Facebook that would have been deployed quite widely. You know, it's a big company, but the impact is so much broader when you're able to go to a worldwide audience and you're able to engage with people and help to solve the problems at other organizations. And we were lucky to have support from management uh, who believed in that vision as well. And at the time, you know, Facebook was also releasing wildly successful open source projects like React in the development space and stuff. So it was luckily not a hard sell to make those capabilities and that code base something that we could open source. And I believe we got it open sourced within about six months of starting the development. So it was an early priority and something that we, uh, that we got done quite quickly. Very cool. Uh, Leonard, how about you? What inspired Greylog and what was behind the decision to make it an open source project? I was a very, very junior developer. And um, I wonder sometimes if what I know now uh, 
compare between kind of the time that has passed since 2009 and 2022, um, almost 2023, man, it's almost, it's almost December. Um, I, I wonder if I would still make the same decision because basically, um, uh, I was looking for a log management solution at a job that I was looking that I was working at back then. And, um, there, there was a few, I'm not going to name names, but you probably heard all about all of those few, um, that were already back, uh, uh, very popular back then. And they were just unbelievably expensive. Um, they were way more than, than what we could have ever afforded. And so, uh, being a very junior developer, I said, well, I'm just going to build it myself. It can't be that hard, right? You need a, what do you need? You need to somehow accept these logs on the network. Yeah, okay. And then you have to write them in a database and put a web front on top of it. That can't be that's much, right? Uh, it shouldn't take longer than two weeks. Uh, so that was 2009. Uh, we're still not done. Um, and, uh, we're today, we're, we're more than 130 people working at this company. So, um, you know, we're still not done, right? <laughs> so, um, I started it because I needed it. Um, I needed it for myself. I was looking for a learning project anyways, because like I said, it was very junior. This was exciting, right? Something I'd never done before. Let's go. Um, you're, I think it was 20, I was 21 and, uh, you have a lot of energy. You don't have any commitments, nothing, you know? So you're just like, yeah, I'm going to build this in my free time. No problem. And so it wasn't even a question. It wasn't an active decision for me even to make this open source because it was entirely clear that I would make this open source because why would you not? Right. Having had zero um, uh, commercial or business intentions with that at all. Um, and I thought, yeah, that's fun. Maybe others can use it. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turns out others started to use it. And um, it's funny because I think it started the same month that um, uh, Jordan Sizzle started uh, Logstash, which is also very pop- uh, popular, right? So I think we started within two weeks or so. We both had the same problem and we both just created something to do that. Um, we, we met a few years later in Berlin. It was very interesting to share those, those early stories. Um, but yeah, that's that's why, honestly, it was entirely clear for me that I'm not going to keep this for myself and I want people to use it and I want the feedback from the people who use it. I didn't even think about community at that point. I was just, if I put it on GitHub, um, and it was very early GitHub in 2009, uh, if, I, if I put it on there, people might see it and use it. That's awesome. Um, that that honestly, for the first years, that's what kept me motivated because people used it and liked it. Um, that's something I wouldn't underestimate for when you get started with something open source. I think that um, it, it keeps you going when people use it and, and just tell you that they like it or what they use it for. And um, that's why it started. I needed something. And of course, I make it open source. <laughs> I'm never going to sell any of this. It's fine. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's my story. Uh, that's great. Uh, Peter, I'm going to extend the same question to you. What inspired Suricata and what was behind the decision to make it open source? Uh, so Suricata was actually open source by birth, uh, to be very honest. Um, so it was actually back in the day, uh, Victor, Julian, Matt Yonkman, and Will Metcalf, I think, uh, were the initial um, uh, group behind the project. Uh, Suricata originally started as a... Uh, DHS-funded initiative. For back then, DHS had uh, this funding for different open source projects. It was a good initiative, and that was 2008. Um, and I think one of the reasons why uh, the first push of code was, you know, December 31st, uh, 2008, was because that was the deadline. Um, so there were many projects that uh, DHS, at least open source project at DHS back then, uh, funded. It was like a fund that is no longer uh, there, but... Suricata was the only, if I'm not mistaken, the only open source project that survived today. And actually, one of the reasons why 
uh, so Ricardo survived, I believe, is that it was open source, which actually enabled it to uh, have uh, a lot of feedback um, and an early adoption uh, by community. And that's really what kept us uh, going as well, because uh, people were coming back with requests, coming back with bug reports, coming back with some feedback. That's uh, just just to reiterate what Leonard mentioned. That's what keeps you going at uh, 10 p.m. or 2 a.m. at uh, you know noon. It's this kind of unspoken things like them try to fix, them try to help uh, to, to help out. That community around you really is what fuels all the um, the, the initiative uh, back then as well. Today, a lot of commercial um, and uh, also non-commercial solutions are based uh, on on Suricata. That by itself uh, is uh, rewarding enough, <laughs> I, I must admit. So I had uh, uh, the pleasure and the luck of being a part of the, uh, the initial journey and still uh, uh, be part of uh, part of the um, team and, and such a great bunch of people. Oh, that's re- that's really great. I love the Genesis stories. They're they're one of my favorites. Um, I'm going to throw this one out to the group. Uh, if somebody out there has a good idea and wants to go the open source route uh, to see if they can bring it to life, what's what's the best way to get started? Is it build it and they will come, or do you have to be proactive, market the idea? How how do you get that initial inertia? I think it's a little bit of both. Um, uh, you will definitely need to go out and tell people that this exists, right? I think you still, that's actually something cool about open source is that when you start it, you're going to be responsible for absolutely everything. You're going to learn a little bit about marketing. You're going to learn a little bit, a little bit about legal. You should definitely pick a license very consciously and not just grab the one that you've heard about because they, they all seem to be the same from a user perspective. If you don't, if you never have to dive too deeply into it, you just know it's free and it's open. Um, but you should think definitely, take care when it comes to choosing a license. And luckily there's a lot of resources out there for it now, but I think to get it started, um, uh, what worked for me was I, uh, I built a website and I put some effort into that because still you need to tell people what this is about, right? You still need to be able to explain why someone might be interested in using this. Um, um, and I think the other thing that I did is I went to, uh, I went to a lot of user groups. Um, so I, uh, back then I was still living, it's actually where I grew up um, in in Hamburg in Germany, and uh, uh, there's there's another user group for something IT related every day. You know, it's very dense, very European kind of dense city. So I was just going to one user group after another and just showed it, uh, which is why in the beginning it got very popular with the Ruby community of all communities. Mm-hmm. Um, because I was writing a little bit of Ruby back then and I built the first connector to be Ruby and went to the local Ruby user group and showed it. Right. And so <laughs> that's where it started. There were a ton of Ruby users and Rails users. Um, I think you also, the other besides telling people about it and having a website you can point them to where they can learn um, what this thing is about and why they might want to use it. I think you also have to, and this is where honestly some open source software is lacking. You have to put effort into making it easy to use as well. Um, Just because it's open source doesn't mean that people suddenly put up with tons of time and tons of extra effort. Um, It doesn't have to be as good as a product built by a company that has entire entire teams that take care of the UX and the onboarding process, right? But still, it has to be maintainable, has to be somewhat easy to install. There has to be good and complete documentation um, because I think eventually your community and your user base is going to grow when you hit this magic moment of 
there's a bunch of people out there who like it and who really like it and who feel good about recommending it to their friends and their peers. And that's when it suddenly starts to spread like a wildfire. But you have to set that up. You have to arm them with the right arguments on why this is good. And you have to arm them with the with a good onboarding experience, with good documentation, good screenshots, and put some love into it. Um, which is actually, I think, a big difference between... I, I look at open source software in two, two different ways. There's one that is truly built as an open source project for others to use, which is this is not hyper-specialized with super complex architecture where someone just had something and then open sourced it. I think there's another approach, which I think is important, which is the one that I followed so far, is you build it for other people to use it. So you make architectural decisions to keep it simple. You make right. um, uh, architectural decisions to make sure that the dependencies don't go crazy, that what you install is actually easy to use. And that's why I moved off of Ruby on Rails eventually, because I loved it and I knew how to set that thing up. But if you've never done that before, um, that's a hurdle. And that's why people didn't use it. And so I switched over to other things for that. I think that's something... These two things together, if you have a good project and something people want to solve, I think then then you're going to see success out there. Yeah, and I think that the the biggest thing here is make sure that you are solving a real problem that people have. And I think that the easiest way to do this is, like Leonard said earlier, solve your problem. So whether that's you independently as a, as a consultant or contractor or just something that you're genuinely interested in, or even better, if it's your employer's problem or, or your job, your, your problem in your current role, if you can find a way to take the knowledge that you have from performing that role, the understanding that you have of the problem, and then use the resources of your employer to do that initial development, use the real world test bed that you have for understanding whether your solution is actually solving the problem. And starting from that direction, I think gives you a, a huge leg up because ultimately I think it's absolutely not the case that if you build it, they will come unless it's solving that that problem. It's something that people are, are hungry for a solution for. And then I think absolutely other things that Leonard uh, mentioned, like making sure the onboarding experience is good, making sure that the thing is understandable, uh, easy to do to deploy. Those are absolutely important. And there's almost like a inverse correlation where the more desperately people want to solve this problem or the more value that that, that this solution can bring them, the more pain that they can work through in the deployment and the onboarding and the understanding and that kind of thing. And sometimes the, the nature of, of the problem is going to be that there's there's not an easy way to do this and, and making sure that it, it is a really good and well-motivated problem helps to get through those early times. Times, and then later you can devote some of those resources to improving that that onboarding, improving the understanding and those kind of things. Um, so I'll share a story actually of what actually worked for me, for us um, um, on, uh, on both an open source and, and a commercial level. Um, so I totally agree. Your documentation needs to be in place. Uh, it's a tough job to fill in because you have different uh, user level experiences, right? You have the new early adopters. You have some users that are 
that they're very well experienced, um, you know, and they can pretty much do a lot of things by themselves. Um, but you also need to, uh, th th that part we don't worry about uh, because those users are so-called power users, so they can pretty much flow through anything. They have the experience. Um, the part where you would actually might need to help and show uh, less experienced users or young users what is the benefit of it and why, that's that's actually helps a lot. What so Eric and I, uh, we're co-founders of Atstamus Networks, right? We, we do a network detection and response a solution. So, but that's entirely based on SwiftCat. But Eric and I met via the SwiftCat project. And how we started was basically, um, as SwiftCat was gathering momentum, people kept us asking us, hey, can you help us out with this project for two months, for five months? Might help us out here and there. And eventually we said, okay, well, let's actually, uh, you know, uh, officialize it, um, and try to, uh, and try to, um, uh, to make a company out of it. So basically, very rough, that's how it started. But um, as we have our roots in open source, we said, well, while we're doing that, let's also make it useful to uh, uh, organizations, people that cannot actually afford it, for example, uh, or cannot afford uh, supporting similar things. And so we made an open source distro uh, called Cells that is based on Suricata. So we open source that as well, and we put it out there and say, hey, uh, this is for, you know, anybody that wants to use it, but our aim was mainly, you know, students, trainings, uh, universities, non-profit organizations and similar things just to help out. It was all packaged in one ready to go. But effectively, what we actually did was uh, showcase it, make a use case out of it. So here is what you can do. Here is an example, um, at least an idea, an example, a working example, and how you can implement it. And, uh, you know, criticism, feedback is always welcome. That's one thing that you have to really be open to. And it's those types of communities and people that thrive, actually. You need to be open to criticism. Uh, you cannot have a closed mind. You, you have to know that there's users in... Probably all time zones, everybody has their own use case that is peculiar. You cannot solve all the problems, but you need to be open to all the feedback and criticism because that's actually what, as I mentioned earlier, well, that's what keeps you going and, uh, um, and ultimately actually improves the project, that feedback, that, that anything that we've taken as bug reports, as a feature requests, as anything like that, that's what has helped the project actually grow and be more useful ultimately back to, uh, to the community. Um, so, uh, yeah, absolutely. If, uh, if you open the communication to via different channels, I mean, back in the day it was IRC, right? So, so you cannot really share screenshots and things like that, but <laughs> it was good for <laughs> to explain the screenshot and similar things. Uh, so that, that actually also helps a lot. And it was good to see. Then the real reward came actually when you see other people starting to answer instead of maintainers and things like so. That's when you know you actually have a community, you have somebody, somebody has your back, and that has no monetary value to it. That that mm -hmm. is irreplaceable. Yeah, that's uh, great. I actually, I there are a bunch of features and, and things in the product today. Um, that some people really, really, really like that keep on coming up. And those were, they started, I remember 10 years ago as a feature request from a community member. You know, that is, that's part of this power of open source. You're going to have so many eyes on your product so early. And also when people get something for free, they are actually very likely to give you feedback, even if they don't continue to use it. They will often tell you why they don't continue to use it, you know, and they'll be open to come back to it maybe at some point. Um, I will say that having our first paid customers many, many years ago adds another dimension to this. This is where you get the more like the 
the smaller pieces of feedback about details, you know, something where like, okay, I got this for free. I'm not going to complain about this one weird little thing, right. which however, turned out to be really important in production for many. So that's the other thing. If you want to commercialize it, I believe personally, it's important to also get a paying customer. Maybe it's just one or two as early as possible because the moment they gave you any amount of money, the, the conversation entirely changes. But yeah, I completely agree. Um, uh, that that feedback is absolutely invaluable and you have to keep that open um, and um, you have to accept that through as many channels as possible. Completely agree. That's a great segue into my next question. Um, writing code and maintaining a project is incredibly time consuming. And no matter how passionate we are about a particular idea, most people want to be able to eat and pay rent. Uh, assuming somebody can get that initial momentum going, what are some of the different ways they can generate revenue to support themselves to continue working on the project? Yeah, in my experience with both OS Query and Fleet, consulting was a really useful way to do this. So I would work with organizations uh, to help them do deployments of the tools. I would work with them on uh, feature requests and typically not bug fixes. That was something I always tried to to do for free. But uh, building new features, I think the having someone be motivated enough that they're willing to pay for something really talks uh, says a lot about the the reality of their need and a, a really important thing to try to look out for if you are a maintainer of one of these kind of projects is you know make sure that the clients that you're working with are committed to getting those changes upstream so luckily i worked with some great clients and was always able to get the changes upstream but i think that it, it is definitely worth paying attention to the you know the clauses in any contracts that you sign and 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 uh, regardless of what the contracts say just the intentions of the individuals that you're working with do people understand that it's important, you know, to you and to them and to the health of the project that these things make it into the upstream. I also think as, uh, as part of actually one fundamental, uh, at least from my point of view, one fundamental uh, critical point originally when you, when an open source project is created of any kind is actually, I think we just want to piggyback on what Linder said previously, uh, the original license. That uh, would carry with the project for a long time. And that's not something that if after an open source project is widely adopted, it's not exactly something you want to touch, <laughs> you want to change at all. So this is one of those moments where actually you need to um, really well kind of have a strategic view of what and where you want to go and why have you chosen to put a specific license in place? And I'm saying it, there's a lot of open source projects, but they have different licenses, right? You have LGPL, GPL, BSD, all those sorts of things, and they have slight different variations. And depending on what you do, you might choose one or the other. Uh, but at least from our perspective, that has proven to be uh, to be essential because um, a couple of ways that open source projects can make money. Of course, you need to pay developers. Of course, they, they need to be uh, maintained. Uh, of course, you have to make sure that it works on 16,000 different OSs, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and all sorts of architectures and in and out of the cloud and anywhere you want to plug it. So that takes a lot of, uh, sure, it takes a lot of resources. But um, one thing that um, 
Um, a couple of things that, that are always useful is probably, um, so if you offer support um, for uh, certain levels of support, let's say, or a um, the possibility for uh, donation versus non-commercial license and all that stuff. So that actually also helps. It's not the only two possibilities, but there are, uh, there are possibilities out there. And of course, if you rally the community really uh, uh, behind and if there's a big community, you also get... Uh, so you can get help by a lot of different ways. So you might be just uh, different organizations or users donating code or deciding to maintain a specific section or a sub-module of the code. That, that helps a lot as well. Um, or you can actually have... Uh, donations and help from different organizations, governments, and similar things. So there are ways. You have to work, of course, at it. It's not just uh, something that will just fall out of the sky. You have to work at it. Uh, mm -hmm. But you have to work at it by building a strong and stable community and yeah. be open to and, and be open to bashing. <laughs> be open to ideas. Be open to the feedback. Always know that there's there's something behind that question that actually triggered. It's something that you're not exposed to. You don't know it, or it's not related to your environment, your setup, and similar things. That's what makes it so versatile. That's what makes it so interesting. You know, you always. Uh, I personally, yeah, but I like it because there was something new that I learned. I, I don't, I don't know it all. I like to learn more. But still learning. <laughs> I think um, for the very, very initial phases, I, uh, I agree with Zach that the um, consulting can can get you help off the ground. Uh, the cool thing about that is consulting compared to support contracts, consulting usually comes without SLAs, right? That comes without, that comes with a schedule you can plan somehow and it comes in smaller chunks. It's not a one-year commitment to get up in the middle of the night because because there's an issue with your software somewhere, right? Um, I think a, if you're just one person and you're getting started, I would say it's almost impossible to provide support for at least at the levels that many customers would want, right? Um, so then you might be better just selling blocks of consulting hours, Um mm -hmm. I personally personally like that um, that idea a lot, um, but it will only get you started because it's something that's really hard to scale. Also, you know, um, something I'm personally curious about that I see more more is donations. I see people who 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 make a sustainable living with donations, right? For very very popular um, for very popular open source projects. Um, I hope that more and more companies that use open source projects will donate to the open source software that they're using. Um, even without getting anything in return, uh, so to say, because they're already getting the whole software in return, right? So yeah. even without additional, additional, uh, additional consulting or anything like that, or prioritization or or anything, um, I hope more of that happens. Um, and then I think personally, I believe that um, once you've reached. A you need a minimal scale for this. My dog in the background. She's she's part part husky, and I think the male lady is outside, so she's <laughs> going to make sure she knows. Um, uh, a a thing that I think you can do, I believe you can do even in earlier stages of your scale. You have to be more than one person, obviously. But I think a really interesting monetization strategy is cloud offering your software, depending on what kind of software it is, but. Um, I mean, if, if your software is a JavaScript library, I think cloud hosting gets a little tricky. But if you run anything like infrastructure software or something like that, if that's what you're building, I think that one of the things that people will 
always be open to pay for is to not having to care about maintenance, updates, stability, scalability, all of that. So um, my favorite example of that is MongoDB. Um, I think they've done an absolutely fantastic job um, starting out with, uh, with support and consulting then going into real support contracts and then going into a, an enterprise offering. So open core, basically. Um, and then they went into their cloud strategy. And from what I can see, I mean, they're, they're publicly traded now. Um, from what I can see, they're doing absolutely fantastic with that because people don't want to run their own databases, right? I get that. But they still like the flexibility if, if they ever had to stop using the cloud service, they could simply go back um, and run it themselves again. Or the other way around, they, they run it themselves in the beginning because it's cheap and easy. And then um, once it gets more production critical, they start to move into the cloud, but it's the same software. So they just run a migration and show the uh, uh, change the endpoint basically off. Um, I find that super interesting. Um, that is something that we as Greylock do. Um, we offer Greylock Cloud um, because it's, it scales really nicely and it provides real value for the users. Um, but even there, of course, the question is the license, right? What is, is there a, I might be opening a can of worms here, but um, there is something like the SSPL, for example, a license that has been designed to keep, that basically gives you all the freedoms of the GPL, but does not allow a, a user or company, anyone to offer you a software as a service. It's like an, an AGPL on steroids, basically. Um, now there's been a lot of arguing about that. And we made that switch when we, when we started to offer Greylock Cloud. We, we went from GPL3 to uh, the SSPL um, because we didn't want to have other cloud hosters um, suddenly compete with us without ever paying us anything, you know? Right. Um, and you can still make that work. There's there's some companies that run this at a smaller scale. Um, they reached out and said, oh man, now we have to stop using this. We said, no, no, we'll, we'll cut you. Like you pay us like $1 or something. I'm making this up. But you pay us like $1 or something and you get a formal license and you can still do that because yeah, we're not competing, you know, but right. if a large cloud hoster were coming around the corner and asked if they could do that, that'd probably be a different story. Um, and I think that's the reality in open source today. And, and again, it comes back to a license you've got to pick. And I agree, changing licenses... It's no fun. Uh, you want to think it's when you start. <laughs> yeah. And it's, I think it's really important to look at the business model when you're thinking about scaling beyond one or a couple of folks working on an open source project. So what we've done at Fleet is we've adopted the buyer-based open core model. Uh, something that uh, Sid C. Brandy, the, the CEO and founder of GitLab, talks about a lot and that they use uh, as a model for deciding, you know, what goes into a free tier and what goes into a, a paid tier. So it's important. I think it's really important to make sure that whatever you do, it's a strategy that scales if you want to build an organization that scales. So things like support can be tricky to scale because you have to input the, a, a person's time, an individual's time into support. Whereas if you're building a cloud, like Leonard described, you've got, you've got scale there that you can, you know, you can scale with SREs, with operations people, or if you're doing sort of the buyer based open core model where like we do at fleet, where the code is all source available. Some of it is fully open source under the MIT license and others are under our commercial license where we ask people to buy uh, you know, to pay for the the devices that they use. And that, again, enables us to scale an engineering organization to build value into both the free and the paid products. 
So I think looking looking at these different pricing and different business models around open source and making sure that you're conscious about what sort of scaling you're enabling with the way that you set up your company is is quite important. Great stuff. Um, successful open source projects often have diverse and active communities. How do you manage these projects to keep everybody pulling in the same direction? Is there specific communication tools? And how do you manage between people who are contributing from out in the community to people that are core to the project? This is, a, for us, this is a story in two phases. Um, the first phase was there was no company. It was basically just me working on it. And then the first contributors started to appear and they built stuff. And the very first ones built something that made no sense for the product in the roadmap. You know, they just needed it and, and they built it and they um, sent a pull request for it. And then it, it's painful to tell them that I'm not going to merge this because it makes no sense for the roadmap. And I'm not, I also, I don't want to maintain this going forward. Right. And it's not nothing that, that I believe fits very well. Um, so, um, what we, back then I, what I started doing was I, uh, started to put the roadmap very publicly for the next two releases or so. And these were all the tickets. And I was more asking for people to pick something off this. You know, you, if you want to contribute, if you want to do something just to contribute, here's a bunch of stuff that needs work. What do you think? You just go and pick something off that. And then, of course, you have things where people work on something because they need it, right? And I've always encouraged people to reach. If, if part of the interest to build it is a hope to get it merged get the code merged into the project to before they start working on that to reach out to me. And then let's talk this through. If this makes sense of maybe in another way it would make more sense just to increase the chances of it in the end being merged. Um, but then also I think it's, you, you, you have to be somewhat strict and also just some stuff you just won't merge, you know, because it doesn't make sense. It can't be the, can't be this idea that everyone writes something. So it ends up in the, in the core, um, because then it's going to become unmaintainable. Absolutely. No matter how good the code is, just all these feature saves are going to start making sense in their combination at some point. So that's always to make me feel less bad about rejecting something. I always said, let's talk about this first. Try and make this very clear on the GitHub page. Like, Hey, if you plan to build something, you're five different channels. You can reach me, right? Just let's talk. And then what happened after is when, when I started the company, I hired most of the people who were contributors. And we do that today. If someone starts contributing a lot and it's good stuff, we make them a job offer. Um, so we, we kind of keep the, we kind of keep the, uh, the, the direction that way. Um, and we, we kept on doing all the other stuff, you know, like talk to us before we build something, all of that. Um, but that's special that works for us because we've also never set up to become a um a committee driven foundation owned kind of open source project i think for those it's very different i know that's that something that sits under the um cloud native foundation under the linux foundation something like that they are starting this very differently from the beginning because they're going to have so many contributors they can't hire all of them you know yes. they have they have all these what I see work really well for the open search project right now, for example, we love to work with. Um, they have these, they do all their planning, all their stuff in the open. They have these, these weekly meetings that are open to everyone. It's just a Zoom link, right? Everybody who's interested, come join us, you know? Um, and I see that work pretty well so far over there. But I think there's this early decision also you got to make. Do I want to make this? a project that I run and I take contributions and maybe there's a core group of a few people who work on something, or is this going to be something that is truly like a, 
like this classic idea, like the Linux kernel, you know, like this classic mm-hmm. idea of a huge open source community that has all this governance around it and all these things. Um, 600 I, different versions of Linux. <laughs> yeah. So I, I decided early on that I wanted to do the second thing, which is I wanted to keep the control a little tighter. Um, but through that, also build a more focused project. Um, and, but that's a decision you got to make. And then also stick to it. You can't have both, right? You can't, mm-hmm. you can't want to have all the control and then also expect that 600 people come and contribute stuff all the time, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's tough. It's ongoing communication, I guess, is my, my, my answer in a nutshell. What I can relate from, at least from uh, the early days, uh, that my experience anyway, what I saw in the project, in the Suricare project was actually, um, very interesting. So first of all, there's a couple of things that were kind of interesting. Uh, kind of still some of the users that are part of, uh, part of the community back then are still now uh, users, of course, and power users and so on. But it's funny how to go if you go back in time on GitHub or Redmine, whatever, see the feature requests of the bug reports, see how their feature request changes with time, you know, because they actually do different parts of uh, different parts of the job. But um, you know, one thing you uh, you ought to be careful about is uh, always an open source project that uh, let's say doesn't have all the resources for developers that that we want that we want or that the project wants is that uh, you if you accept a feature that you have nobody dedicated to support it you might end up actually. Um, Sort of, kind of damaging the project, not in a not in such a brutal bad way. But I'm saying, if if you accept a feature and users start using it, and there's no actually active support of that feature or that sub module, then you actually put the whole project at risk. Um, there is a chance for that too. So um, I agree. The clear communication is easier. Uh, a lot of um, our users, including from the early adopters from the early days, actually. Um, like to be involved. I believe it or not, people actually like to help out and it gives them also a special recognition and status. And uh, so part of the communication is also to recognize the, the effort others are putting into uh, this, into the open source project as well and make it well known and be like, thank you, uh, people and organizations for actually supporting us via all sorts of different uh, ways and means. Um, no, but I agree with one thing of clear communication. Communication can be done in many ways. Um, back in the day, it was just mail <laughs> or, or form or something like that, uh, or IRC. Now there is a lot more uh, uh, kind of uh, different forums, all sorts of social media platforms, uh, you know, channels, Slack, Discord, Mattermost, you name it. It's all very much easier to communicate, highlight, or get in contact with somebody if you need to. Um, but after you... Um, if you have a clear communication in line of what is expected from a contributor, in a very simple term, let's talk about this feature. You know, this is the reason why we want it like that. What's your reason? And you meet in the middle, kind of. But the most important thing is to have that before the actual contribution is done. Because when you, you also have a chance, have an opportunity if the actual contribution is done and then you start talking about it, uh, then you, 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 you might lose a lot of time you know, back and forth and uh, fixing things and going through the whole architectural part uh, as well. So an advice for early adopters is please do get into contact. Um, your ideas are always welcome and great. Um, and But there's always some caveats and always like aha moments and things like that. So uh, it's definitely uh, setting up guidelines of what a feature or how a PR should be done and what's the reason and the explanations and formats and commit structures and 
QA tests and all that. And once the, once the user organization goes through that to submit a code, then they start to realize, it's actually a good thing to start to realize how serious this project is. So it's, about, it's, it's serious. You don't want to just merge stuff that will actually backfire. You start finding bugs so a couple of weeks later and similar things because you want, of course, the project to be stable and to be, by meaning stable, is like useful to the end user, right? Nobody's going to run it if, if, it, if it breaks all the time. So, so mm-hmm. part of the real, uh, uh, sometimes why you have to be uh, difficult or tough, let's say, so to speak. Uh, as much as early as possible as you can do communication back. And users will actually like it. They'll love it. I've met a lot of people that actually like to be part of that, uh, of a project or of a group, or then they become actually ones that give advice to the next generation, the younger, the younger contributors. And it's amazing. It's just, it's just really amazing. There is no replacing of that, uh, for example, in the commercial world. And often enough, for example, in a Suricata project, we also had donations. And one of the reasons for a donation of a code, let's say, is because it will get tested much more than you will do, be possible to do in your lab. You know, so <laughs> that's irreplaceable as well. Great. And I have experience with kind of both models, the the foundation and committee based approach, which we use at OS Query and which OS Query these days is a project of the Linux Foundation. And then the sort of company directed approach, which we use at Fleet. And certainly there's trade-offs for each of them. If you do the company directed approach, you can move a lot quicker because you don't have to reach consensus for all of the decision making. And, and that can be... Uh, a real advantage for sure. I think it allows you more sort of control end to end of the experience that users will have as they start to interact with your project. And, and that can be really huge for improving, you know, some of the things that we talked about earlier. On the other hand, the foundation kind of model has advantages in terms of resiliency. I would say, you know, when you get more contributors from more different organizations into a committee together, then losing one contributor, one organization doesn't mean the end of that open source project. And I think with that, you also get the advantage that, that, you know, as with the Linux kernel, the project can be sort of the kernel for more pieces of software, more companies that folks are, are building. So we see that with OS query where, uh, I would say many, if not most of the major security vendors now have products that integrate OS query. Uh, and I think that that's enabled in, in a large part because it's more of a foundation based model. Very interesting stuff. Um, an argument that's often put forward against open source as a way of developing software is that it's less secure because bad actors can see how it works and engineer ways to attack. On the other side of this, many people say that these projects, if run properly, are more secure than their closed source counterparts because of that transparency. What are your thoughts on this? Is there specific things you can recommend fledgling open source projects do to make sure they maintain the highest level of security? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I don't buy the security through obscurity argument uh, that just because, you know, you've got your, you've got everything covered up that people aren't going to find the weaknesses in there. And I think that one of the really cool things about being an open source project is 
the transparency that that being open source uh, kind of forces also tends to push you towards, I think, the best practices and towards mm-hmm. being uh, more honest with ourselves as developers about are we doing the right things? Uh, because people will scrutinize these things. And not only will they scrutinize these things, they will, they'll find issues and we'll have to be very public about addressing them. And I think through all of that, we, we come to both better discipline, but also a, a better uh, you know, high watermark, I'd say, of the security practices within the projects. I agree. And it is actually be much, uh, from that respect as well, um, open source bug reporting or, you know, exploit CVs being reported like that for open source project. He actually has, in some cases, much higher responsibility and, and puts lots more pressure on the project. So uh, if a project is mature enough, that they will respond, uh, at least from what I've seen and from my experience, they will respond uh, accordingly. So, And uh, it's amazing sometimes how these open source projects can actually man up and be more proactive, more communicative, and more responsive to their exploits than actually that's a commercial counterpart, which you, you, uh, you actually subscribe, uh, subscribe to. Not to say that one is better than the other or similar things. I'm just saying one is um, an open model. But the fact whether you're open source or not doesn't save you really from from exploits and CVs. We have plenty of examples of both. So uh, mm-hmm. I mean, you cannot really say one is higher than the other or, or less than that. It's just uh, a different, basically, uh, a, 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 different, uh, a different model. I don't... Personally, I think that just because the, your code is open source, you're more prone to uh, CVs or exploits or hacks or, or similar things. Uh, sometimes the open source projects are, it could be a million lines of code. I mean, good luck uh, trying to figure one out, honestly. <laughs> so it, it, it has pros and cons as with, as with anything, as with, as with everything. Um, I think it's not really a matter of. Uh, commercial versus non-commercial and all that stuff. I just personally to reiterate mean that that it's open source is open source project have actually a lot more pressure on them to deliver on time and fix things as as fast as possible just because it's actually open source and there's a lot of users there and everybody's watching what your response is going to be. So you have that responsibility to to do do it. It could be a lot of pressure too, absolutely. Yeah, and um, so I agree with everything said. I think the only thing I would add is um, as a open source project that is used by people, you have some responsibility, maybe not a legal responsibility because the license usually handles that, right? But you have, I think, a a responsibility to, to deliver software that follows security practices, right? Um, so um, cool thing that, that I've noticed over the last years is that more and more... Um, uh, security vendors uh, allow you to use things for free if you have a true and purely open source project. So when it comes to, um, I'm thinking about supply chain security, right? Your your entire um, all the all the dependencies that you have. I think over the last few years it has become standard um, to um, have some sort of scanning on those and to have some sort of alerting about um, insecure vulnerabilities that you might have, uh, insecure vulnerabilities, insecure libraries with vulnerabilities that you might currently compile into your code. Um, you, of course, still have a responsibility to take care of that. Or 
to at least say this is no longer an active project. You can keep the code out there and be very clear that, hey, I'm no longer maintaining this. You're kind of on your own, you know, or maybe someone wants to pick it up. Um, it doesn't mean that you are now forever kind of bound to this and you can never get rid of this project again. Um, you can, some, I mean, there are abandoned open source projects out there, but I think it's your responsibility also to actively abandon it and not to just let it linger there and you have a bunch of people right. who use crazy outdated software, right? right. Um, and um, yeah, so I like that. I mean, if you develop on GitHub, they're, they're moving more and more, just like GitLab, I think. They're moving more and more into uh, providing that entire that entire tool chain to you. Um, I mean, you can just turn on their scanning and you get you get notifications about uh, security vulnerabilities that they're finding. And then, yeah, you need a good process to to handle these reports when they come in. Um, there is a standard, the, the security file on GitHub. Um, I don't know if GitLab follows that, but on, on GitHub, you can create a security.md and put some guidelines in how people can report um, security vulnerabilities securely to you. Um, and get help to pick that up and show that. And there's there's a lot of best practices from the large projects out there to to follow. I think. Awesome, great answers. Uh, I know we're coming up on time, so I, I only have one more question for you. Um, and this is really: Do you have any advice for people looking to start their open source project? Like things you wish you had known if you could go back in time and, and talk to yourself when you were first writing that first line of code. I, I've, I've so many things. I'm wondering if there's anything open source specific. I mean, I'm off the, Oh God, you're at so much to learn. Um, so many ways. Um, and I don't know. I, I feel like I always come back to, if you coming back, to, I mean, let's go full circle, go back to your first question. Um, uh, I, I, I still don't say that build it and they will come, but also if this is your side project, you're using your free time, Go build something that solves your own problems and have fun doing it. And I think then you're on a really, really good path already. But if you have any intentions to ever make this in any way commercial or make any sort of money with it, um, then think about that up front a little bit at least. Make a little bit of a plan. Um, I think that would be my advice because I definitely got the second part wrong. And there was a lot of stuff that we had to fix down the road. Um, And some of that is a little painful. Yeah. Yeah. I would say you you also have to um, uh, probably one thing among the things that you need to think about is uh, okay so is this like a side project that you actively intend to kind of keep an eye on maintain does it solve some small issue or you actually intend to actually be at it for the long term as opposed to I just want to throw a bunch of code in there maybe someone wants to pick it up that's okay too just coming back to what Leonard was mentioning you know, licensing I think it's it's very important. Uh, but uh, yeah, solve a real case problem or try to um, and get all the feedback uh, possible. But B, have clear lines of communications established. Even if you don't intend to be 24-7 on the keyboards and all that stuff, just have some clear guidance, clear licensing in mind um, in the project as well, uh, um, clear contribution agreements and similar things. So how to contribute and what to do. And if somebody wants to reach out to you and ask you uh, like a, a, a private kind of off the grid question, make sure you have that line there too. You know, so for example, there's plenty of channels and things like that. Somebody can get in channel and just ask you privately a question. So make sure you're open to all those things um, as well from the from uh, from the very beginning. Uh, so if you have that set up straight, I think I think you're in a good position um, down the line. Only time can tell, but if you have the base right, then I think you'll be right. That's great. 
Yeah. And I'd say just make sure that you're clear from the start about what your intentions are and how being an open source project ties into those. So maybe open source, maybe you're excited about open source because of the community. Maybe you believe that it's a good way to commercialization because it will help with the initial adoption. Maybe there are philosophical reasons that, that you have to pursue that. But I would say, you know, make sure that you understand what those reasons are and then that you look critically at what you're intending to get out of that and make sure that, that, you know, as you game some things out, that it does align with those goals. Awesome. Uh, Thank you so much, gentlemen. This was a great conversation and full of useful information for anybody thinking about starting an open source project. Uh, I want to thank everybody again for being here. It's been a real honor. Thank you very much, Christopher. Blender, Zach, pleasure to meet you folks over the wire. Much appreciated. Thank you all. Take care. And that is a wrap for this, the 10th episode of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. We're super grateful and appreciate you listening in and engaging with us. If you found value from this podcast, it would be really appreciated if you could leave a quick review or rating. It would mean so much to the team who put this podcast together. And make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you are listening from. If you have any ideas, criticisms, or just want to say hi, we can be reached at defenders at limacharlie.io. Thank you again, and we'll see you on the next episode.